me ask you to reach for a Bible and turn to page 1021, if it's uh, one of the Bibles we gave you on the way in, page 1021. If it's your own Bible, that should be 1 John and chapter 2. Let me just add my welcome as you turn there. I think we've heard enough about the rugby, so I won't mention that. But uh, it's great. I've met a number of people who are here for the very first time this morning, and you guys are particularly welcome with us. Whether you're here on the strength of an invitation or you just decided to come along, it is great that you are here. Our method every Sunday morning is to read a passage of God's Word, then to try and understand it together. That's how God speaks to us today. It's how God works in our lives. It's how God gives us the gift of relationship with Him. And so I'm going to pray and ask Him to do those things and then read God's Word to us. Almighty God, we've just sung that you teach us, you lead us and guide us in what is right, and even that you show right paths to us when we stray. And so we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit who inspired your word, the Bible, all those years ago, you might be at work among us this morning giving us understanding of uh, your word, of our world, of ourselves, and that you might be bringing us to know you more fully and deeply and to walk rightly before you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read them from 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 12 to 17. John says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Please keep that open in front of you. And then on the back of the notice sheet, you'll see there's an outline of where we're going in our time this morning. And uh, there are only a few verses, but they take us right to the very heart of life. Uh, They're about who we are and what we love. Uh, It is hard to think of two things that will have a bigger impact on the the dreams that we have, on the leaders that we follow, on the decisions that we make, than our sense of identity on the one hand, who am I, and the deepest affections of our hearts on the other, what do I really love? And obviously there's a really tight relationship between the two, because my sense of self is going to influence the things that I love, And then what I love will in turn reinforce my identity. And we all have competing loves. Uh, We love family and friends. It's great that we do that. We love our hobbies. Some of us are lucky enough to love our job 
or what we study or where we live. But deep beneath all of those other loves lies a choice that every believer will recognize as a daily battle. Uh, The 4th century theologian Augustine expressed it like this, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God, and the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. Or verse 15 in our reading puts it maybe more simply, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, You'll see on the sheet we've got three points this morning. The first two are are pretty obvious from the passage. And then in the third, we're going to be asking ourselves, why is it that John is saying these things to this particular group of readers? That might be a puzzle Uh, at first glance. First, they will think about who we are, and if I am someone who believes in God's Son, Jesus, as he was uh, first witnessed by the apostles and then proclaimed by him as we meet him in the Bible, then John says, if you're a Christian, you know the Father, and you will abide forever. Um, We started on the poem in verses 12 to 14 last week. I'm just going to read it once more. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. And you'll see that the verses are full of blessings, uh, promises that, that Christians know and experience in the present. And as you glance at the poem, you'll see it comes in two sets of three. There are three I am writings, and they're followed by three I writes. And each line of the triplets is addressed to a slightly different group in the congregation. It's common in the letter for John to refer to all of his readers as little children. He was a senior citizen in the faith at this point. And then fathers and young men, I think, probably refer to those in the congregation who maybe are getting on a bit, and then those like me still in the prime of life, male and female alike. And it's obviously a a poem or a song, but all of the blessings are true of all of God's people. And I'm going to put them under five little headings. Enjoy them with me. First, I I once heard of of a man who compared his life to a swimming pool. I don't know what you'll think of this. Uh, He said, might look really good to other people on the surface and from a distance. But as he looked at it, he could see all of the worst mistakes that he'd ever made in his life. Gathering like rubbish that had been dumped on the bottom of the pool. And no matter how hard he tried, he could never leave them behind, and he could never get them out of his head. That'd be an awful way to live, having to to carry your mistakes and your sins around with you, knowing that one day you're going to have to give an account of your life to your maker. See the, the confidence that the Christian believer enjoys in verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, children of God, because your sins are forgiven 
for God's name's sake. Chapter 1 taught us, we saw it a couple of weeks ago, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Again, it said the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all of our sin. And elsewhere, the Bible talks about God removing our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. Not left in the pool to stare at and churn over and over again. He treads them underfoot. It says he buries them in the bottom of the ocean. He promises never to remember them ever again. And I love that there's no maybe, there's no possibly, there's no hopefully. It's just a, a statement of fact, isn't it? If you're a Christian, child of God, your sins are forgiven. Then twice we're told, you know him who is from the beginning. That's uh, John's name for Jesus back in chapter 1, talking about the eternal word of life who became flesh. And you don't just know stuff about him like he's a historical figure, but you know him. Third, it says you know the Father. Because our, our fellowship isn't just with God the Son, Jesus, but through him with God the Father. And every believer knows the Father as our Father. And we'll see more of this as we go in 1 John. But there's no greater privilege than that. There's no deeper security than that. Personal protection relationship with God. Uh, able to relate to him, calling him Abba Father, the same name that Jesus used for him. Fourth in verse 13, it's repeated again in 14. John says, you have overcome the evil one. Uh, the victory belongs to Jesus himself, of course, as he triumphed over evil, the devil on the cross. But because we're united to Jesus, if we believe in him, we share in his victory. It means we've got nothing to fear ever from the evil one, because the one who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And that brings us to the final blessing in verse 14. John says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. We don't feel strong. Uh, of course, in our own strength, we are weak. If you ever tried to live the Christian life in your own strength, you'll have found yourself uh, falling over in no time at all. But the Word of God is in us. It's implanted in us at the moment that we believe. It's living, and it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And as we receive it by faith, it's able to build us up. It's able to strengthen us and to grow us up in our salvation, to mature us and make us strong. And so in Christ and by the Spirit, we are strong. It's an incredible list of blessings. I'd love to encourage you just to take a few minutes, maybe this afternoon, maybe this week, and just read over them slowly, number them one at a time, and stop to thank God for each of them if you believe in Jesus. Father, I thank you that my sins are forgiven for your name's sake. I thank you that I know you. What a wonderful blessing it is. The, the point of the poem, I guess, though, is that in the present, as Christians, you're not always going to feel that secure or that blessed. Many of us are, are prone, have you noticed this in yourself, to forget the objective facts of the gospel as they're set out somewhere like this, and instead to end up putting a huge amount of faith in how you feel about God or the Christian life on any particular day or week. And if you ever go through a spell of 
feeling a bit dry or distant or cold towards God, you'll soon begin to wonder, am I really blessed? And when that happens, you'll begin to be susceptible to the world and its desires. And then to leaders in the church who suggest that there's something more than Jesus that you need and you're missing out on. And so John is saying, come back to facts, come back to reality. If you trust in Jesus, you already possess all of these blessings. He's the only place where they can be found. Allow them to be what defines you in life. Because knowing who you are will shape what you love. It's true of one final blessing as well. I'm going to jump to the end of the passage, take it slightly out of order. Not about the present, but the future. And the end of verse 17 says, The world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Just enjoy the, the comfort, the confidence that there is in those words. Uh, we all know that our experience of life is marked by peaks and troughs by joys and sorrows. There's richer, there's poorer, there's sickness, there's health. There's spiritual highs, there are desperate lows. You, you can strive to put sin to death and walk in the Spirit. And then we fail our Lord over and over again. And it is exhausting. And one day, all of the nonsense will melt away. And there will be no more sin or selfishness. There will be no more disease. There will be no more depression. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more greed. There will be no more temptation. There will be no more failure. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. All of that will be gone. And we will be with our Lord and we will be enjoying his presence and love in unbroken fellowship with him. He will be our God and we will be his people. And that is the glorious inheritance that awaits God's people. It can never perish or spoil or fade. And that future certainty, above all else, will be the thing that defines our identity in the present. And as we hold on to it, it will determine what we love if then I believe in Jesus. That's what it means to do God's will here in the context of 1 John. Do I believe in Jesus? If you trust in him, you know the Father and you will abide forever. And I want to remind you that you can believe God when he says that to you, that you can trust him because he cannot lie and he is always faithful to all of his promises. It's one big reason why we love him and an excellent reason not to love the world. And that's our second point. Do not love the world. You'll see it there at the start of verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Uh, we know, don't we, that the message of our culture is that love is always good. Uh, we want to be lovers, not fighters. We're told to celebrate love in all of its forms and wherever we find it. Um, the Church of England bishops have been peddling that lie in the last few weeks once again. So it, it kind of hits us in the face here that the first big command of 1 John is about something that we shouldn't love. 
You know what's even more striking? There are 51 uses, one of the books told me, of love in 1 John. The other 50 are all about things that we should love. This is the only negative. So it's a big deal. It jumps off the page. Do not love the world. He's not talking about creation, as though there's something spiritually dangerous about loving the beach and sunrises and sunsets and the little baby ducklings on the burn and cute puppies. They're not bad for you in that sense. There's nothing wrong, as we've been thinking this morning, with enjoying good food, good wine, exercise, hanging out with friends and family. We're told elsewhere that everything that is created by God is good and is to be received with thanksgiving as a gift from him. He's not talking about culture either and whether you're into the highbrow stuff like Wagner and Shakespeare and ballet or you're more into the other stuff like Jay-Z and J.K. Rowling and street dance. We're meant to be discerning about what we put into our heads and hearts. Of course we are. But it's okay to enjoy the good gifts that God has given to the people that he made. So what does it mean, do not love the world? Uh, John uses the word world 23 times in the letter. Almost always he's talking about people or behavior, or values, or even like a a whole structure of society, and this is the key bit, that is set up in opposition to God. Society, people, values, behavior that oppose God. And that is something we're definitely not meant to love. And John gives us a couple of reasons why. First, at the end of verse 15, do not love the world, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is, as I put it on the sheet, the two are incompatible. It's simply not possible to love God and the anti-God world at the same time. Uh, Verse 16 expands on John's definition of the world for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, And um, as it's here in the ESV, the pride of life, I think maybe the footnote's more helpful, pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Those three little elements cover our natural sinful appetites, affections, and ambitions. The desires of the flesh is probably a heading for the other two. Here's how one commentator defines it. To be subject to the flesh's desire is to judge everything by purely material, physical standards. It's to live a life that is dominated by the senses. It's to be gluttonous in food, overindulgent in luxury, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, selfish in the use of possessions, and extravagant in the gratification of material Desires. It says, um, he says, the flesh's desire disregards the commandments of God, the judgment of God, the standards of God, and the very existence of God. Another puts it like this, the desires of the flesh are like a lasso that tightens around our chests, seeking to turn our attention away from the eternal, invisible, and holy God to that which is merely material, transitory, and evil. And anything that I desire that is pulling me away from God 
That's what he's talking about. Don't love the desires of the flesh. Desires of the eyes. That's the, the desire that springs up in our sinful nature when we see something that we want, that we like, and we think, I've got to get it, even if it's not pleasing to God. It's like Eve in the Garden of Eden. Um, she saw that the tree was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was to be desired, and so she took it and ate of its fruit. And that's been the pattern ever since, seeing, delighting, desiring, and then taking. Uh, last in the list is pride in possessions. That's the, um, the elevated sense of self that our sinful nature derives from the things that we possess. And I guess you'll know how it can work. We, we desire something. And if we're able to acquire it, somehow it makes us feel better about ourselves. It can be as simple as a phone or a computer or a coat or something ridiculous. But somehow it, it makes us feel more substantial. Like we're somehow a better person because we've got it now and someone else hasn't, that we're more important. Uh, in, the, in the short term, money possessions allow us to do more things. They give us comfort. They give us security, respect, status, often power, a sense of our own significance. Money possessions aren't bad in themselves. If the Lord's blessed us with great material wealth, we should be truly thankful. Poverty is no fun. But we should also be aware of the dangers. Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if I begin to take pride in my possessions and I allow my money and the size of my house and the cost of my car and the brand of my phone to be the, the thing that defines me, when I love money more than I love God, then I'm in some very dangerous waters. Because when I'm taking significance from the stuff I've got, well, that doesn't have its origin in God the Father, but in the world. And so John says, do not love the anti-God world. It's just impossible to love both at the same time. There's a bishop in Antioch in the second century called Ignatius. He said, do not have Jesus Christ on your lips and the world in your heart. And that's John's point here. There's a second reason as well. It's there at the start of uh, verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John's saying, remember that for, for all of the charm and the seductive power and the promise that the desires of the flesh and the eyes and possessions can carry with them, none of it is going to last so John knows the temptation when you're meeting up with a friend for coffee to pass on a really kind of tasty morsel of gossip that you've heard. He knows the temptation to have one drink too many or to click on the wrong web link or to covet or to lust. He knows how strong the desire feels within us. He knows how much pleasure it promises. He's saying it's all going to go. It's temporary. So cast our minds forward a hundred billion years and the anti-God world will be gone but you will abide and you will still be enjoying all of the blessing of your relationship with God the Father and you'll be so glad that you didn't give up and start to love the world 
and allow it to pull you away from God. Here's how one preacher put it in terms of our possessions. We enter the world with nothing. We desire. We acquire. We enjoy. And then we leave the world with nothing. And only the one who does the will of God abides forever. It's the second reason John gives us not to love the world. It's passing away. Like the darkness up in verse 8. Darkness is passing away. It's all about the light. The world is passing away. It's all about Jesus. Uh, Just before we move on from this point, a couple of thoughts on this. First, have you noticed how easy it is to think of the Christian life in terms of what we do? How when we, we talk to one another, we talk about going to church and being in a small group and reading our Bible and praying and sharing our faith. It, it's all important. But this is the first command in John's letter. And before he talks about the stuff we have to do, he wants to zoom in on what we choose to love. And what we choose to love is a choice. And it will be the thing that shapes our identity and our actions. Or again, as we look to the future, so many of us are at a time of life when we're looking to the future and we're thinking what's next. We ask one another, what do you want to do when you graduate? Or what are you going to do when you retire? You can spend ages turning over what we do. We'd do well to ask ourselves a prior question. What do I love? What does God want me to love? Because what we love will end up defining who we are far more than what we do. So what do you love? The world? John says, don't. The other thing that strikes me here is that John doesn't say, do love God. He wants us to love God, but that's not how he puts it. I think that's what I would have done if I'd been writing it. Here's all the blessings that God, God has lavished on you, so do love God. John flips it into the negative. I think that's because He knows how easy it is for us to try and deceive ourselves that it's possible to love both God and the world. Many of us don't mind being told to love God as long as we can carry on loving the things of the world as well. But we can't have it both ways. So John says, don't love the world. Brings us to our final point. And do not listen to the world either. I hinted the question that's been troubling me as I've been preparing. Why does John suddenly write this at this point in this letter to these people? Do you remember the situation we've met the last couple of weeks? Um, John's readers have been unsettled. Uh, There's a group of people, teachers who have left their congregation. They're claiming to have a deeper knowledge of God, deeper, richer uh, anointing from him. And uh, they've left the gospel of Jesus, but they're claiming they've found something more. And he is writing to reassure them. He wants to reassure his readers that they, uh, because they believe in Jesus, as he was proclaimed by the apostles, they can know for sure, they can be confident, you do know God properly and personally. You do have eternal life and it can't be taken away. And so all through the letter, he's doing two things. One is he's exposing the leavers and the other is that he's endorsing the apostles and their gospel about Jesus is truly coming from God. And the reason for this warning about loving the world is that he wants 
his readers to see the levers and their lives for what they are. Because they sound really spiritual. And they're making big spiritual claims. But John says, really, they're just another expression of the anti-God world that's been there since the fall. So sure, don't love the world in general, but don't love or listen to the leavers in particular because they're not from God, they're from the world. Actually, this verse 215 marks the start of the second big section in the letter. It's where John turns the spotlight directly on the the leavers. They've been in the background all the way through, as we've seen here, they're center stage. Bit by bit, John is going to expose them over the next few weeks for being anti-God for being anti-Christ, for being deceivers. Um, The section runs, I think, I haven't finally come to mind on this, but I think it runs to as far as chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Can you just turn there for a second and notice how he rounds this off? It's really significant. He's got the leaders in mind, the leavers in mind, when he says in 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then look at how he describes the leavers in verse 5. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We the apostles are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So you'll see he's, he's unmasking the leavers. He's saying this group that have left for us today, this Church of England's bishops, they are from the world and they speak from the world and they will be listened to and followed by the world. But we apostles are from God So keep listening to the gospel about Jesus that we first proclaim to you because that's what people who know God always do. And I take it that's how the warning back in chapter 2 fits in. Be really careful about what we love because if we start loving the anti-God world, then it won't be long before we start listening to and believing anti-God teachers who will only lead us further and further into darkness. Itching ears will always find teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. But where does the itch come from? It comes from the love of the world. A.W. Tozer once said, any doctrine that makes the world your friend is not your friend. And you can flip it over and say, if you make the world your friend... Soon you'll believe the lies of the world and then before long you'll be owned and defined by the world. More of that in weeks to come. For today, stop, please, and remember and count the blessings that you have in the Lord Jesus. And turn that into praise. Spend time thanking God that you know the Father Your sins are forgiven. Even the times that you know, maybe even in the last week, that you've allowed the desires of the flesh to take a bit of hold and to direct your course. 
the times that you've allowed the, the desires of the eyes to just win over you, and the times you've allowed yourself to be defined by your possessions. If you bring your sin back to Jesus, your sins are forgiven. All of that blessing is ours in Christ. So don't love the world. And don't listen to those who speak from the world. Remember that the world is anti-God and is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our hearts are simultaneously full of thanksgiving and conviction. We're convicted because we know that all too often we have loved the world and the things of the world and that we've at least begun to flirt with the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes and the pride of life. We recognize now that they're not from you. We recognize that they're passing away. And so we want to praise you that you promise to forgive and to cleanse all who turn to you in repentance and faith. We want to thank you that if we've trusted in Jesus, these blessings are ours, that our sins are forgiven, that we know Christ, that we know you, that in him we have overcome the evil one, that we can be strong because the word abides in us. And we pray, therefore, that you would help us not to love the world but to love you, that the love that you've shown to us in Jesus might increasingly be the thing that defines us and the thing that captures our own heart and our affections and so shapes our behavior. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.